Hi there, I'm Paulina Cameron, CEO of the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, a national charity that educates, mentors, energizes, and connects women entrepreneurs. Welcome to season three of The Go-To for Entrepreneurs in the Know. The Go-To is brought to you by the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs in collaboration with the Scotiabank Women Initiative and generously supported by the Women's Enterprise Organizations of Canada. I'd like to acknowledge that production of this podcast is taking place on the unceded and ancestral lands of the Coast Salish peoples, specifically the Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Musqueam nations. On our last season, we dove into resilience, and this season is all about the builders, the women entrepreneurs who are building businesses with big visions, building teams with great impact, building stronger communities, and growing our economy. They are the women behind the products and services that we admire. Their stories will take us on a journey and give us a peek into what's happening behind the scenes with their businesses at this critical stage of their growth, and will bring forward great nuggets of applicable wisdom and a solid dose of inspiration. Let's dive in. Okay, and just before we dive in, listen up. At the end of the season, we will be giving away a pair of Apple AirPods Pro, courtesy of our friends over at TELUS, so that you can have a delightful podcast experience on the go. All you have to do is enter to share your feedback. What did you love? What would you love to see going forward? Who would you like to hear from? Submit your thoughts at fwe.ca slash feedback, and we will draw one lucky winner at the end of the season. Welcome to episode two of season three of The Go-To for Entrepreneurs in the Know. I'm so looking forward to diving into conversation with Marie today. Marie Chevrier is the founder and CEO of Sampler, the leading platform helping brands like L'Oreal and Nestle deliver samples online and gather insight they need to build one-to-one relationships with their customers. Sampler has reached over 50 million consumers globally, 50 million consumers globally in 24 countries, and its most notable clients include CPG industry giants like Unilever, Pepsi, and Henkel. Marie is also a dedicated advisor to technology and CPG startups, including Scout Canning, member of Retail Tomorrow Advisory Board, and the co-founder of Retail TO, a community dedicated to growing and strengthening Toronto's retail ecosystem. Hey, Marie. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to our conversation and I'm going to begin, I, now that I gave the highlight, highlight reel <laughs> of <laughs> where you are, I'm going to take us back to where you began. Can you tell us where you started? What was it all like? For sure. So Sampler, um, the idea behind Sampler actually started while I was in university. So I was one of those brand ambassadors handing out free product samples on street corners and in grocery stores. And I always felt that product sampling was one of those uh, channels that really just needed to be digitized, uh, but hadn't. If you think about it, when you receive a free sample at a grocery store, you take the sample, you walk away, and the brand really has no idea whether you had a positive experience or a negative experience with it. So mm-hmm. that was quite some time ago, and um, it will have taken me you know, another three, four years in between Uh, to get to the day where I decided to start Sampler, but it was all from that initial insight, uh, handing out free product sample. And so what was the moment that you thought, okay, this can be a business, this can really be something I give it a go at? Yeah, it's funny, like, I feel like the life just kept bringing this concept up um, in all of my experiences. I worked in a digital marketing agency, helping consumer packaged good companies with their marketing, learning about their digital channels they were leveraging, and nothing really felt like it was as strong as getting someone to taste or touch or feel the product. And after that, I went to New York City, worked in venture capital, where I got the opportunity to be an entrepreneur in residence and really learn everything I needed to learn about how do you start a business. So take those two experiences together. I had the idea, I had this startup kind of mindset and and learnings. And I also had the experience working with brands directly. It just it just really accumulated all all at once to, 
you know, the perfect day in October of 2013 where I decided to just take a go at it. And I shared a little bit about how it's going now, but can you tell us in your own words, where is the business at today and where do you feel you're at as an entrepreneur? Yeah, so the last year has been incredible. Um, Like from a business perspective, obviously, it's been a crazy time around the world. And um, that's definitely been something to, to consider. But from a business perspective, the pandemic has actually brought samplers um, growth to quite the acceleration. If you think of how consumers discover products today, um, it's a lot harder than when they could just go to the grocery store and and get a sample on a napkin. So uh, brands have had to move to digital by Mm -hmm. way of need. um, Mm -hmm. And it's therefore allowed us to really showcase the value that moving to digital has um, for more data-driven experiences, for um, a one-to-one connection with consumers. And so for our team, we really do feel like this is our time. Um, so yeah, so as far as where we're at, uh, we're growing extensively. We just recently raised our Series A. Um, we're looking to grow the team um, to uh, about 50 next year. Um, so it's, it's really exciting. Um, and yeah, it's just about you know, how do we capture all of the opportunity we've been working so hard towards uh, the last several years. It sounds like you really set up the foundation for that success. And now when the timing is aligned, you're really kind of seizing that opportunity. I want to talk about team and culture because you talked about going to 50. And I know you started 2020 with 32. And then within, you know, six months, you've been growing and growing quite significantly. Six months ago before that, you were at 20. So you've nearly doubled your team in a very short period of time. What has been the impact on your culture? What practices or what have you put in place to really support your team and be so aligned and energized together? Yeah, so you're right. Like it's really about setting those processes and setting up the foundation to make sure that when people come on, they know exactly what their role is going to entail. They know exactly how they can um, get to contribution very quickly Um, So for us, it's meant really looking at um, how, like, what are the responsibilities of every role and how do we get people trained up very quickly? Um, Mm -hmm. And over the pandemic, it's been very difficult, right, because you're doing that remotely. So some of the best practices that I have, um, one is making sure that you keep a really strong, um, a really strong central place where all information can be found. So one tool is a wiki. Uh, so building a bit of a wiki for your company. Um, so we use Google Sites to create um, the sampler wiki, and you can ask the Google Sites platform on Sampler, um, you know, any questions. So how do I set up a shipment, for example, and it will return a lot of useful information. So people can self-teach themselves, they can reference stuff. Another thing that we did is we launched Sampler University. Sampler University is a one-week training um, period. It's usually the first week of your time at Sampler, mm-hmm. and you participate part of a cohort. So you and everybody else that starts that week will get the exact same training and we will expose you to every single team um, on the group. That's such a smart process to design for that. And I mean, especially onboarding people in digital times, it can feel a little bit scattered or hard to process through. So it sounds like you've really thought through that piece. Now, it requires a very keen eye to operations and details, which also takes a lot of time. Do you have you did you bring on board an operations person? I know for a lot of entrepreneurs, it can be hard to balance the time and energy towards vision as well as kind of the <laughs> process and the nitty gritty. How have you uh, managed that through your growth? Yeah, so so I have a I'm very lucky that I have an incredibly strong leadership team who supports me with the management of all of our different teams. So they they're department heads that are, you know, overseeing all of the different teams. Um, and together we work at setting, you know, the the foundation for each of those departments. 
One other important hire that I made um, now two years ago is the chief of staff, who is now our head of operations and finance. Um, really, uh, she is my second in command. She's an extension of my arm, if you will. Um, she, she was perfect because I have full confidence that any question that is asked of her um, she will answer like with the same instinct as I. Mm. So finding somebody who could be kind of your second in command, who people know you, they could go to, they could go to her, and it could, it will. It's as good as getting an answer directly from Marie because she um, has the context of how I would answer, um, but also has a very similar vision for how we want to grow the company. You know, thinks very similarly about how to build teams. So, yeah, so she oversees our operations, finance, and people. And at what point of time in the business did you bring her on? Like, was there kind of a moment of scale or revenue? Or when did you know you needed to kind of shift away from the day-to-day and bring someone on to support in that? Yeah, so it it was around um, about 20 people um, that I started feeling like um, not only was I – so busy managing um, like a big part I'm a sales I'm a sales CEO I'm like a a marketer CEO in the sense like I I'm definitely often the face of the company in in large discussions or um, so so I was always on the road and so it felt like um, it was really hard to keep a pulse on what was going on in the company Mm -hmm. uh, while being out promoting the company um, so that when that balance was like really hard to find, I, I realized it was the time to get somebody who could be my ear to the ground, um, with the team. So in addition to growing your team, you've also been growing your funding for the business. Congratulations on recently closing your Series A. That's really incredible. And I understand that to date, you've raised uh, $10.3 million, which is amazing. I would love to hear from you how that process went from you went for you. How did What did you learn from the first raise to the second raise? How did you think about it all? And uh, any lessons that you've learned along the way? Yeah, for sure. So the the first uh, money we raised was actually um, from like straight out of a accelerator program or pre accelerator program that we had done. Um, the the pro the it's called today. It's rebranded to Startup Boost. It's actually a program that's still available. Um, so definitely check it out. The idea of the program is was to get you fundraising ready. Um, and we won the competition and our first investor, Michelle McBain um, from Mars and also from, um, from, the, from Stand Up Ventures, um, saw me pitch and was really uh, captivated by the story and, and decided to, you know, invest in us. Um, that was what we would call like a pre-seed. Um, and it was, it was I think what I've learned from that is that what made us stand apart um, in that competition um, was definitely the fact that we had generated revenue already. Um, We had paid clients. We had clients that had used the platform. We had proven the product market fit with them um, and or early product market fit. Um, And so I'd say like every time someone tells me like, oh, I want to raise capital, um, like what should I be doing? I'll, I always say like focus on sales, focus mm. on showing mm-hmm. traction um, and never, never, ever just assume that like you can raise money on a story because uh, yes, there's people that can, um, when, but you know, the story that those people don't tell you is that maybe they've founded two, three, four, five startups before and now they have the clout to, um, to raise mm-hmm. just on a story. But I raised my first capital because I had a strong revenue sales story. Which the timing for that is so important, right? Um, Okay, so for fundraising, what is so important is building relationships. So you kind of talked about the early ones that you got. Have you done anything, you know, uh, I'm sure you have around how do you keep warm relationships? How do you keep engaging your investors? What do you do on that front? Yeah, so... Once once you get investors, you have to start um, like managing 
communication with those investors. So um, at our at our stage, like we're reporting back to investors monthly. We're sending them financial performance. We're sending them like some key highlights of wins um, and things that are happening with the company. We're keeping them engaged. We're keeping them excited. And the reality is that it's really, really paid off because our investors, uh, we have a, a large percentage of our investors that have followed on in every single round. Mm. Um, in fact, you know, many of our rounds have been led by the same investors. Um, and, you know, that's quite positive because they're, they're mm-hmm. the ones that um, they, they, they make the entire process it's a lot easier to, to, to work with the same people and, and them realize value um, and continue to, to work with you towards your next growth goals. So, um, so yeah, so um, get great investors that have the ability to stay on with you and to continue to invest in your company. And, and um, yeah, it's a partnership. Realize that, you know, you're responsible for their money now and you have to report effectively to them. Um, so that if you if you expect that you know they'll be well first off it's a requirement but secondly if you if you expect that they'll play an active role in continuing to grow the business with you whether it's financially or strategically that's so incredible to have that because it really shows that the loyalty is there as well as the continued belief and trust and engagement and they become activators and champions for you too right that's at the end of the day also investors yes they bring the the money capital but they also bring their network and social capital to the table so can you talk about what um, what D2C companies should be thinking about in terms of what data to gather, how to monitor it, should they invest in a CRM or not, how to really think through that? Because those can be really big things when you're imagining scaling up and can be so powerful when unlocked in the right way. If you, I'm going to make it very simple, if you today are not investing in understanding who your customer is by collecting their name, email, and a few characteristics about who they are, you are going to be on this infinite loop of paying for that consumer to come back. And that's the largest missed opportunity for for your budget. Think about it at the end of the day, like owning that customer contact can save you so much money on the on the long run because you won't have to be paying to retarget them on Facebook or retarget them on all these different things. So CRM is a must. Um, it's it's crazy even that people are still debating if they should be investing in CRM. Um, you should be investing in one-to-one relationships. Um, and and I, I'm obviously speaking about like MySpace, which is the like B2C marketing, B2C consumer packaged goods, right? Um, but I, I think it applies to B2B too, right? It, understanding who you sell to, getting closer to them, adding value to them on an ongoing basis is um, really, really important. And how can entrepreneurs think about what data to collect? So you've, you talked about, you know, a few personalization questions. And obviously, this looks different depending on what your company is and what your product is or your services. But what might be some ways to consider it or questions to ask around knowing what data to collect? So on a B2B side, I'll, I'll talk about like how we talk, how we segment our audience. So when we reach out to brands, understanding their function in a company will allow you to really personalize what their needs might be, right? So if you're a B2B business, creating personas, create five personas. What does a brand manager leverage sampler for? What does a head of e-commerce manage sampler for? If you can write out those different things, quickly you can develop content strategies, email marketing strategies, advertising strategies that fit those different target markets. It could be as simple as that. I love that concept of start with the start with the initial basic and then keep incrementally adding. It can feel overwhelming if you're trying to think of what is the perfect right thing to do in the end, <laughs> yeah. um, but begin at the beginning. Okay. And as we wrap up, Maria, I want to uh, speak a little bit about a really important topic for anyone, especially this year, certainly for entrepreneurs, certainly for women entrepreneurs, and that's mental health. Entrepreneurs have to navigate so much and often women entrepreneurs face additional context within that. I know you 
had written a, a blog post around burnout, which really was widely resonated. And in it, you talked about destigmatizing, asking for help. I wonder if you could share with us a little bit more about your experience here. And also, how as a leader, have you been able to balance the need to, you know, show up for your team to motivate them to keep things moving and going, and still support yourself as an individual and as an entrepreneur? The the reality is like when you ask, you know, how how do you how do you do that? How do you take care of yourself and also take care of your team? I I really always have um, looked to my um, instincts of like what feels right and and mm-hmm. what feel like like um, how like how how would I like to how would I like a leader to be? Mm. Um, and for me, like transparency has always been really, really big. So, you know, I, with my team, like I'll often say like, Ooh, I'm really nervous about this presentation or, um, I don't really know how to say this, but what I'm mm. trying, like, you know, I, I think that just being human, um, and going back to that human and person and just be like, Hey, I, as I'm going into a situation, if I don't know how to deal with it, just be yourself, like be yourself, like, um, transparently and and bluntly. And, um, you know, I've just trusted my gut on that. So I I do it from the heart, I guess is the, is how I lead. And, and, um, and yeah, and I, I try and balance, uh, you know, my, my health and my team's, uh, my team's needs. I think I do an okay job, but sometimes, sometimes it gets out of whack and when it does you just gotta you just gotta address it and Mm -hmm. um try and get back on track Mm. the human part of it right sometimes we forget when we're in the business or the the day-to-day grind of it that we are at the end of the day humans all of us exactly Thank you, Marie, for sharing that. For those who would like to continue following, learning about you, engaging with you, where is the best place for them to do that online? So I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. I like to share some of our stories um, there quite often. So you can find me, Marie Chevrier-Schwartz, on LinkedIn. I'd love to be connected there. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Marie, and for your uh, insight, wisdom, energy, and inspiration. Thank you. Thank you. We are now going to take a quick pause before we hear from our next guest. The go-to for entrepreneurs in the know is the outcome of a collaboration between the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs and the Scotiabank Women Initiative. Let's take a moment to hear about our generous supporter. FWE is so pleased to have teamed up with the Scotiabank Women Initiative. Did you know that they have an advisory board consisting of Scotiabank executives who share their expertise during group mentorship sessions? They cover a variety of subjects for women entrepreneurs such as this one, partnerships and co-founders. To join the program, go to scotiabankwomeninitiative.com slash join now. I am so excited to dive into this next conversation together. Anna, Oana, and Vivian are longtime friends who have grown their love of linen from a side hustle to a profitable and scaling venture in just three years. Flax Sleep started as a direct-to-consumer linen bedding retailer, and today they offer beautifully created and curated linen goods for your whole home, from bedroom to bathroom to kitchen. And I know their growth plans do not stop there. Calling in from Vancouver, BC, let's welcome the three founders of Flexleep, Vivian, Anna, and Oana. Hello, you three. Hi. Hello. (laughs) Amazing. Okay, let's begin where it all began. Let's do a little how it started, how it's going. What was day one like? Um, So I guess would day one, day one would be the day at the art gallery? Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, so, uh, I'm Anna and I had bought a new bed and needed new bedding, uh, for my bed and had decided I wanted linen bedding and I wanted to support a Canadian company, um, in that purchase. And I looked at stores and I looked online and I had trouble finding anything that worked with my fairly decent budget or, and, 
and that was exactly what I was looking for. And so I thought, well, I can't be the only person having this problem. Maybe we should start a linen bedding company. And I think if I called Viv and Juana, I could probably convince them to do it with me. (laughs) (laughs) I love how you went from, this is really annoying for me today. Let me start a business for it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, And it wasn't the first time that I'm like, maybe we should start a business doing this. They were like, no, you can't do that. A number of times before we had said no to a number of other businesses. (laughs) Um, And this one, they were like, we need to check the internet. We think you're not like looking hard enough. Mm-hmm. And then like, it was probably less than a day later. They're like, we need to sit down and talk. Um, we can't find us either. And we sat down at the uh, Vancouver art gallery and I think over cure Royale's. Um, and, <laughs> and we all said, yeah, let's do this. And Juana said, and we shall call it flax sleep. I did say that. Um, and at the time I know I didn't know that linen was made from flax. Nope. I'm not sure Viv did either, but nope. Wana did, and that's sort of uh, day one. And we were like, okay, well, now we just have to find something, someone, you know, to design our brand, develop our website, and Casual. figure out where to get, get this stuff from. Um, okay, that is like fast track galore from here's yeah. an idea, here's a thought to business. I need to backtrack on two things. One, how did you all meet? I'll start with there, and then I have one more backtrack. So day one at the art gallery wasn't actually day one at all. It, it was day like 576 or something for some of us and far, far longer for some others. Tens of thousands. For Tens some of thousands. <laughs> Vivian and I know each other for, uh, it's coming up on 18 years, Vivian. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. We met in law school <laughs> and, uh, and then we all met Anna at our local uh, coffee shop. Well, not local coffee shop, the downtown coffee shop that we frequented during our lunch hours and breaks from our corporate jobs. And she was the most energetic, self-assured, stylish person we had ever met. And we both thought, man, she's cool. We should do something with her. Anna, and so you just saw these two lawyers and were like, I guess they're okay enough. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think, Paulina, the first time I ever met you, it was at Bell Cafe as it well. Was. But, um, oh, it was. Yeah, it was my job to to host people in that space, to make people feel at home in, a, you know, a slice away from their, their you know, the grind of their uh, daily work lives. Um, and, you know, I feel like in the seven years I did that, I made a lot of really good friends um, in that space. But yeah, lifelong business partners and certainly, and I met one and live separately. Um, Wana had a really very specific breakfast order. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then when I realized that they knew each other, like after meeting them at the cafe separately, it was just sort of like a, like, yeah, these women are two of the smartest women I know. Um, and they seem to really like want to do something outside of their corporate jobs. And so when I thought to myself, like, I have all these ideas who can actually help take my ideas and and do all the boring paperwork mm-hmm. um, and support all the stuff that are not my strengths, you know? And I think that we, uh, part of why we've always been successful is that we all bring something different to the table, but still have fundamentally the same approach to things. How did you go from, this is an idea, there's viability here, there is a need to, we're going to make this a business? From a business perspective, it really started small um and when i think we actually have this call back to this time in the business a lot because we we saw this need and we kind of went and i i'm good at research i really like research i really like sort of um finding pieces of the puzzle that make the business work i really like numbers i'm really interested in sort of figuring out is this is this sort of a fun side project or is it something that's going to make us money so we sort of ran through those initial discussions together quite a bit um, and then we just wanted to sell 200 sets of sheets. That's all we had money for. That's all we were going to purchase. And we thought to ourselves, this is never going to happen. This seems like a lot of, a lot of volume. And if, if, if we sell this, we're happy and we'll go home and that'll be it. So 200 sets this year, how many sets will you have sold approximately? Some, someone, someone. <laughs> I think we sold. Well, I feel like we sold six hundred sets. We're last trying to month, do the math because right? it's More actually been it's been insane. Yeah, I mean it's been like yeah, it will be in the thousands. And our business this year, our business has seen some yeah. significant growth um, year over year. I mean, considering that we started in two thousand and eighteen, right? 
that is incredible. So from 2018 to 2020, 200 <laughs> to a few thousand, um, quite amazing. So give me the how's it going now? What do things look like today? Um, so how it's going for us is we are at a point now where it's time to build our team and bring on uh, more than the number of people we currently have, which is uh, a couple employees and then a number of contractors. It's time to uh, probably get into a space that's bigger than the one that we outgrew the day we moved into it. <laughs> uh, and that is our conservative um, sides that have kind of put us in positions like this. But they were always pieces that we felt comfortable with. And then as soon as we hit that comfort level, we knew we wanted to reach farther. So we're there now. Uh, so I think growth in 2021 and beyond is is the biggest thing that we're staring at. And honestly, I mean, we, in March of 2020, we sat down and, and said, what happens if, because of what's going on in the world, we don't sell another set of sheets ever again? Mm. And we mapped that out, actually. And that's, you know, the, a bit of course, the two lawyers, planners did. did, right? So we, we mapped that out. And um, instead, we launched two collections in a pandemic year. And we have done record sales uh, in, in, our, in our company's short lifetime. We've grown our company six times since we, um, since we started. So it sounds like between the three of you, you have a pretty good groove in terms of who owns what elements, who kind of makes the decisions, who takes lead, who takes point, who maybe has power of veto. Can you tell us about your partnership? Like, did you ever sit down? You were friends first. So did you ever mm -hmm. sit down and go, here's what it means for how we're going to work together, have any agreements amongst each other? Do you have things like power of veto over anything? Do you have any <laughs> habits or like regular? Or things you do to check in with one another? I don't think it's like established powers of veto, but I do feel like when we speak up, we speak up. Faces <laughs> faces say a lot to me. This is why. <laughs> Vivian's there's face also three of veto. us. So there's yeah. a tie, yeah. like, right? I feel if you were in a partnership and there's just two of you, you can reach a deadlock if you don't agree on something. Mm -hmm. And so there is three of us and we try hard to reach consensus. But I think that, you know, yeah. Majority rules. <laughs> yeah. It is getting to a point now where we need to be really good as a co-founder group, right? In order to bring on a team. But I think we started from the get-go when we decided to go and get those 200 sets of sheets. We also decided to go across the world and go and take a look at the manufacturer who was going to make them for us, which was an insane idea at the time. But we found ourselves there on the ground and we were four days away from everything else that was going on in our lives to try to start the side hustle. And it gave us a really good opportunity to sit down and plan out everything, including founders vows. So we decided to write some founders vows because we had already been working quite a bit on the business and realized that there were points where we needed to, we were starting to recognize things um, about our, our partnership. And we wanted to make sure that we always led with that friend's first um, value that we came into this with, because we knew that whatever happens with this business, we want to come out of it with our friendship. So the vows have been really instrumental for us. They were, they were great in the early days. I think they've probably, I think if we look back at them, when we look back at them, we can say that most of them are still the same, but they probably have evolved over time. What's an example? Like what made it into the founder vows? We established a safe word, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> which we don't use that often. We haven't used a safe word no. in months. No, and it was haven't. named after, it, we used the name of the driver that took us from Hong Kong to Shenzhen um, <laughs> to meet that manufacturer. Um, and so uh, his name was Jammy. Um, and uh, so, yeah, we used to use that a lot in the early days when we were super nervous about the next decision we had to make. So what did that? What and when someone said jammy, what did that mean? What what was happening or what had to happen? Like what we need, like we need to back off now and take, take a breath. A, take a breath because at least a couple of people on this call are hyper um, micromanagers, um, 
And <laughs> I mean, without pointing fingers, pick. lawyers are uh, pretty no, <laughs> not hard to pick which ones. Yeah, but you know, so was, uh, over and above those those initial vows, though, I want to I want to be clear that we also, um, although it took us some time, have a proper shareholder agreement in place. Um, the business is run, <laughs> uh, you know, according to this friendship and the way that we've developed our decision making capabilities. But there are, you know, there are obviously all of the all the necessary. Um, the actual paperwork. The actual paperwork in place <laughs> as well. And we've just started working with a coach as well. So those vows were sort of the foundation, which we led sort of started things with, but then realizing that as we grow and scale, we need sort of some external help to continue yeah. to remember our vows. So as you have been growing and kind of going from the early beginning stages to where you are now, let's talk about how you funded and financed this business. I'm curious where you began with that. I know one of the um, connections that we've had is that Futurepreneur, mm -hmm. where you obtained a loan to grow your business. But walk us through what that has been like. So I think when we first started this, there were already three of us. And so the idea of maybe raising money um, and selling shares in this company that we had no idea what would happen with it uh, to anybody else wasn't that palatable to us. I come from a debt financing background, so I, I understand um, uh, borrowing money for, for business. And so when we first started, we figured... One, none of us have the deepest pockets to be able to fund the whole thing ourselves, uh, even though it wasn't a huge order. But we thought, why don't we go and see if we can borrow some money? So Futurepreneur and Women's Enterprise Center were the two organizations that we ended up working with. And it was an awesome start for us because it tested us as well, right? Mm -hmm. We, we thought, we thought we did the, we did the business plan and we did the application and we thought, ah, this is going to be super easy. And we got tested, right? We got asked questions that we didn't necessarily, we hadn't thought about the answers to. We were challenged to go and do some more customer discovery and do a survey. Um, all things that we might not have considered if we did not have a financing partner. And so that had, that was the, that was the little bit of seed money we needed to start. And since then, we have taken some additional financing to continue to grow the business. But we're really happy to report that a lot of our capital comes from our our revenues. And we can turn that back around and make bigger orders uh, every month um, based on what we're selling and then utilize our financing when we need it to, you know, either jump us to another level that we hadn't been able to get to yet or consider a different different, you know, whether it's building out some some lease space and things like that. We're we're just trying to find the best uses for our financing. That is such a thoughtful way to approach it and so helpful to have that background, but also to really think about that perspective of how do you stretch the money and lever and continue leveraging it for your growth. So the other element of growth I want to ask you about is you're a D2C brand business. How has that changed over the last while? I mean, this year, e-commerce has just uh, blown up is probably an understatement. Um, but tell us about your journey with that. And perhaps, you know, what has really worked for you? And maybe what are some of the harder lessons that you've learned in that? Um, I think that from the outset, the notion was let's be a D2C brand because this seems to be something that's happening out in the marketplace and working for people. Um, you know, back to that, like <clears throat> the very original idea was I had bought an, a, a mattress from a D2C brand. And I was like, that was a really pleasant experience. Mm. Um, I could keep shopping online this way as someone who at that point in time was not an online shopper. Things have drastically changed in the last three years, <laughs> not just because of a pandemic, it's research. Um, but I think that, yeah, we always knew that that seemed like the business model that made sense. And I think that, that the barriers to entry initially seem lower because you're not mm -hmm. going out there trying to find wholesale accounts. You get to just directly address your consumers. Um, and so I think that's sort of why we decided that. I come mentioned I come from a customer service background. So the notion of, you know, having to deal with customers directly wasn't something that was intimidating. Um, it seemed to make sense. And customer service is a sort of a huge part of 
what I think makes us successful and has allowed us to scale to where we are today. I think the you know the one challenge with with this model though, and it's been that uh, we didn't really consider and the D two C initial D two C model uh, future um, wholesale or uh, you know B two B type opportunities because. Um, we were trying to provide a certain price point. Uh, and so that that's hard from a growth perspective now, as we look to become, as Anna says, more, more omni-channel. Um, what does that look like? What does the growth of D2C look like? And it's hard because we're in this kind of period where you don't have that many necessarily role models of this size um, that show a path that it would be easy for us to take, right? Traditionally would have been bricks and mortar next, definitely not going that way. Um, and so just in terms of picking and choosing, what does the growth of a D2C brand really look like? Um, exponential growth long-term and growth for what purpose? Um, that Those are things we're thinking about all the time. Yeah, the question of what is your version or picture of success? What does that look like? And I want to come back to something that you said that really struck me. You were talking about, you know, coming from a customer service and hospitality background. How does that come to life in this digital world? So I think we can all envision, you know, when you go into the cafe, the friendly face, how you speak to someone, you know, the extra cookie you might give them with their coffee. What are ways that you have really brought excellent customer service in a digital environment? This is my new kick in the last probably six to eight weeks in terms of customer service <laughs> and how we've had to pivot in a pandemic is um, the ways that customer service has been treated online um, skew towards a younger generation. Mm. And so we had to get a landline in the last month um, to help with boomers. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm on oh, a real big I kick. did not expect you to say that. That's so interesting. <laughs> we so didn't either. We didn't I'm, either. I am a really <laughs> no. big kick to have start optimizing. People need to start optimizing their websites so that boomers can understand how to navigate them. And there's a lot of very web savvy boomers. My mother is not one of them. And I walked through our website with her and I was like, how do, how do we sell anyone to any, like anything to anyone? She doesn't understand any of this. Um, but she has to shop online now too, because that's the world that we live in and, and that's not going away soon. So one of our, my sort of big development projects for 2021, in addition to the landline, which was a quick fix. And uh, Viv can attest to over our Black Friday, Cyber Monday weekend, Viv answered that landline quite a lot sure did and and people used it yeah they want to talk they want you to describe colors to them um you know there's people who aren't used to this model but still want to they're not used to slide into someone's dms yeah talk about like walking in your customer's shoes right at least you didn't have to get a fax line (laughs) yet (laughs) who knows how those work (laughs) send a pigeon send a pigeon Okay, let's talk about social media and marketing. You, uh, from the outside, it feels like you've grown that very successfully, but also very authentically. And obviously for a D2C brand, um, that is how you will be able to grow is that reach on Instagram or Pinterest or wherever you live and breathe. How have you invested into that? What decisions have you made? Um, What has really worked or maybe didn't work? We've held on to our social media since our company's inception. And we've been very loath to give it up, not because, I mean, it's fun, but in the early days, we would literally by committee uh, plan out and, our social media mm-hmm. on a wall. We would analog print pictures and it we would stick analog. them on a wall and we would write the captions together. That's what we did. And it takes up a lot of time, even when you don't do it that way. Um, <laughs> but the reason why we didn't want to give it up is because people can really hear our voice come through, even in on social media, in our email marketing. That's kind of one of our greatest, that's one of our greatest compliments when people say that they can hear us. And Mm. um, as a brand that doesn't necessarily get to see everybody all the time, we still wanted people to be able to, to know us and know uh, why we did this and where we come from and, and what our values are. Um, So as you scale, you can't necessarily keep doing it all on your own. But what we have built is enough of a brand voice that um, the people that we trust to take on that voice for us are doing it the way that we would do it. This is a question for each one of you to answer individually. What do you feel is the most important decision that you have made in the business? 
asking one and Viv to join me. <laughs> <laughs> Saying yes. Saying yes. Yes. Yes is that seat. cheating that was like really early on <laughs> i feel like yeah, I, you get I that want, one but then oana yeah, and i want to clarify do you mean business decision or decision that you have made personally about the business and i'm i'm asking because the, there's different answers to that so i want to hear both i think the most important decision that i've made personally from a personal standpoint in this business is to um really lean into this uh, personal growth that this business has given me the opportunity to undertake. And I mean that everybody else is smiling and being like, really, but have you? I have. Yeah, um, you have. Yes, I have. I, have. We, we, come from, we come from these, um, I, I particularly come from a very um, corporate, but also very adversarial, no nonsense kind of background. It also is, you know, in line with my Eastern European upbringing. This is just how we do it. <laughs> and managing that dynamic, I think, in the in the sort of threesome that we are in is um, has has meant a lot of personal growth and reflection for me. Um, mm. And from a business decision standpoint, it was to double that initial order of 200 sheet sets when we were sitting with, who are we sitting with? Jill, Katrina. maybe? Katrina, Katrina Jill, and maybe. Jill. Yeah. And they said, I think you maybe need more inventory. And we said, that's crazy. No one's going to buy that. Um, but they were right. So that mm. was, and that kind of gave us more money to do the next one and so forth. So, How about you, Vivian? Yeah, I think for me... Personally, the most important decision has been to finally stop, you know, wearing too many hats and admitting that there is a point where you got to dive in and you can't sit on the fence anymore. Um, and it happens to be at a time where, frankly, some days are hard for us. And I've said to these ladies on a number of occasions, they unfortunately have to deal with me going this isn't fun. This is <laughs> not exciting. And, and again, uh, you know, this business would never have worked with maybe even just two of us or one of us because we make each other keep going. And on the days where I have a hard day, they are having great days and they are reminding me of why they're so great. And they're telling me that the thing that I find really scary is the thing that they find really exciting. And that is so, so good. So that, that was one of the things is, is leaning, leaning right in jumping right in. And I think as a business, one of the most important decisions we ever made um, was to stop uh, operating our business out of one or multiple of our homes because we were, again, too scared to go and take space. And every space we've taken, uh, you know, we were timid about it. Do we share this with someone else? Every day, we, every time we've moved into one of those new spaces, we look around and we think, it's already too small. And that's, you know, um, it's, but every step that we've taken so far like that has been big and scary, but ultimately, you know, really fulfilling. Thank you, you three, for sharing with us. I love the stage that you are in, especially as an outsider, because I can see how your hard work has taken you to where you are today. And you're at that precipice of making decisions and making commitments that are going to take you to um, whatever the next level and stage will look like. And so I so appreciate you taking the time and sharing these um, these building blocks with us and sharing with us, you know, the energy you're carrying forward. And I love that you've had a bit of a wind in your sails this year as you can kind of embark on, embark on this next chapter. For those who are listening, where can people find you and follow you online? www.flax, F-L-A-X, sleep, S-L-E-E-P.com or at Flax Sleep on uh, Instagram and all those other social media situations. Thank you so much, Anna, Oana, and Vivian. It was a delight talking to you today. Thank you, Paulina. Thank you, Thanks, Paulina. Paulina. Thank you again, Marie. Anna, Oana, and Vivian for the conversation today. Our mission at the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs is to amplify the voices of Canadian women entrepreneurs across all platforms. 
Typically, this time would be used as an ad or sponsor spot, but we've decided to dedicate the next 60 seconds to a woman-owned business in Canada to share their vision. Let's have a listen. Hi, I'm Michelle Kwok, co-founder and CEO of Flick, a platform and community hub connecting female founders and leaders with students from all across the world through meaningful apprenticeships. So founders are able to get volunteers in their businesses, everything from software development to marketing and everything in between. And students are able to gain career relevant experience, skills training, mentorship under established female leaders, and earlier exposure to entrepreneurship. Since January of 2020, we've matched over 1,400 women in apprenticeships from 48 countries around the world in every industry, and we're not slowing down. We've even matched FWE with apprentices to support all the programs and media that you have access to. If you're interested in taking on apprentices to help accelerate your business, check us out at weareflick.com, weareflik.com, and use the code FLICKFWE10 on your first membership with us. The code is FLIKFWE10 on your first membership. Thank you so much, and we're looking forward to having you join our community. Being an entrepreneur is life-changing, often deeply impactful and energizing, and it can also be overwhelming, lonely, and challenging. Whether you're thinking about starting your own business now, or you've been at it for years, we are here for you. We offer outcome and impact-focused programs, education designed specifically for entrepreneurs, and a deeply supportive community. Our entrepreneurs say that the highlight of their time with us is not only the tangible results they experience within themselves and their business, but also the incredible sense of community with other women who share similar goals, values, and visions. Visit us at fwe.ca slash discover to join us and to learn more about how to be part of the community of education, mentorship, and support. Thank you for spending time with us and listening. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, share, and leave a review. Our goal is to leave no woman behind. Explore more about this episode and learn how to get plugged into our community by visiting fwe.ca slash discover and on our socials at FWE Canada. Thank you again to the Scotiabank Women Initiative and remember to visit scotiabankwomeninitiative.com slash join now to find out how to join. Huge thanks also to the Women's Enterprise Organizations of Canada for your support. And last, but certainly not least, thank you to our incredible production team, Self Hired Media. This podcast is also available in French, thanks to our incredible translation team at Hummingbird Translations. See you next time.